0: Welcome back to the show. Today we have Lyndon O. He's the CEO and co-founder of Ozone. Lyndon, welcome to the show.
1: Kevin, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be on.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what we're going to talk about today and what you guys are doing at Ozone is very timely and very important. And I think a lot of people uh, are going to really care about their privacy if they don't already. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
1: Yeah, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I still consider it uh, my hometown. Uh, At heart, I'm uh, still a Midwesterner. Nice. Um, I uh, went to college uh, at Wesleyan, which is a small liberal arts college in Connecticut. There I tried to get as broad of an education as possible uh, and try to challenge myself in multiple areas. I, I did uh, take you know, conventional sort of math and computer science classes and, and sort of STEM, but I focused on social sciences uh, because I was always interested in understanding what drove institutions and cultural change. And I'd always been this sort of this kind of humanities and social sciences junkie um, you know, a- adjacent to all the stuff that I, I felt like was just kind of required to, to learn uh, you know, that kind of technical stuff. Um, I also studied German and tried to read as much German philosophy uh, in in native German as as possible, which was basically basically impossible. Interesting. Uh, What made
0: you passionate about that? Sorry to cut you off.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I got into uh, reading a lot about history and trying to understand uh, the kind of paradigm shifts in history as we look at things like major movements, like the Enlightenment, um, you know, Re- reviving Greco-Roman thinking, and then moving on into the Industrial Age, and I tried to think about uh, you know what is driving all this, and I got into uh, reading the philosophy of history, guys like Hegel, etc., and and then I just thought, well, I'd really like it's hard enough to read in English, uh, I'd, I'd like to try something a little different, so I I, I took German and and. and Struggled uh, and very in and, and, and tried to take on reading Hegel in the original German uh, very poorly um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was it was great to, to, to at least try
0: Sure, so walk us through the rest of your education and career up until uh, Coming up with the idea and, and uh, co-founding Ozone
1: yeah after college I uh, Went to the London School of Economics uh, I deferred to, to my my program there to work at a hedge fund in Chicago uh, called Very Citadel. Uh, back then, uh, it's a large behemoth fund run by Ken Griffin now. Uh, back then, it was only a few hundred people, which is a really amazing experience for me. And then uh, after I did my master's uh, in London, I went to do a PhD uh, in economics at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, uh, which mm-hmm. is in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. And I, f- I finally was able to uh, put my German to work in, in an applied uh, kind of research space, uh, which is also you know just a phenomenal experience for me.
0: Very cool. So walk us through the rest of your career, maybe some highlights along the way, because you've worked obviously at some of the biggest companies on the planet um, that everybody's heard of. So maybe walk us through that and then we'll dive into ozone.
1: Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll start with Citadel, which is my first job out of college. One of the most formative for me re- really uh, impacted me in the way that I thought about businesses. Um, so I, I was just a wor- wor- uh, uh, a guy in the uh, on the operations team. Uh, what we really did day to day was make sure that trades were executed and settled correctly, which okay. taught me a lot about, you know, attention to detail. And, uh, but, but beyond that, just at the organizational level, um, working under Ken Griffin, you know, taught me a ton about good businesses and, and hiring good talent. Um, one of the things he did, which I thought was really, really stood out at the time was that he made us all read books on, you know, great books on how to think about businesses and markets. Uh, we were reading books on, you know, the fall of long-term capital management, um, LTCM. And then we were reading, you know, management literature. I think, um, you know that that was just good to think, like you know what what are the ca- kind of key components and in, in a formula of what makes a businesses run really well? Um, I think one of my big career pivots during my education was working as a freelance consultant in Iraq. Uh, this oh, is interesting in a, wow, yeah, in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, which is not as exciting as the rest of Iraq, uh, but but still you know pr- really fascinating place to be. Uh, I tried to create an online data repository from offline data uh, in the cement market uh, where I was consulting some private equity funds and some other building material companies, uh, basically digitizing local market data, and then trying to run subsequently trying to run forecasts off of that digitized data. And so the reason why I think that was really formative for me, all that taught uh, taught me, you know, there are all these kind of problems in the data space that are specific to locations and there are, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people that are trying to understand locations uh, and really try to quantify, you know, events and people and, and movement of, uh, of assets. And, um, so that inspired me to start my first company, which is Leviathan analytics, which is basically a way for any business to visualize online what is happening in real time around its physical location. So you could drop a pin on a map uh, based on your lat long, and then we would visualize in real time everything we knew about that location. Anything that we could grab on the digitized world about that location, we would be able to visualize on the map. Very um, cool. so, Yeah, so really, you know, that Iraq experience, it gave me a great toolkit, I think, to just generally to go into tech, because I started thinking about data problems. Uh, And that's when I went to join Facebook uh, as a data scientist. And then uh, after Facebook, I went to Google uh, and I worked on building uh, internal engineering tools uh, on the Google trust and safety team.
0: Interesting. Okay. So walk us through your analytics company getting acquired and then um, how you started and came up with the idea for Ozone.
1: Yeah, that company uh, was my first foray into the startup world. Uh, I started with a friend of mine from um, from grad school in London, and nice. uh, we were really lucky. I I uh, struck out on my own, sort of leaving a very, I think, very comfortable and actually very challenging and good good position at Google to 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 run with this uh, passion. And uh, we bootstrapped uh, on the basis of some contracts that we had, uh, and we were kind of working uh, in a transition state from a tech-enabled services company to a SaaS platform and closely consulting with the, uh, this is a B2B company, so closely consulting with the enterprise customer in uh, specking out the features of what a good uh, off-the-shelf kind of shrink wrap SaaS platform would look like. And that was really great for us to have that relationship Um, And I learned a ton just about, you know, how do you uh, create a new product completely to solve uh, for uh, businesses in a kind of scalable and and rinse and repeat way Um, that led to multiple other contracts with uh, a large luxury hotel uh, property with uh, now 18 locations in, in mega cities all over the world use case being uh, you know we want to see what's happening around the hotel this very expensive hotel property with vip guests that come on and off the property usually with heavy security detail meeting other vips um, yeah in the hotel or going to other places Uh, so that was really fascinating to uh, take on i think a uh, kind of anachronistic model of uh, hiring kind of security guards to walk around physical properties and then ushering them into the digital world with, uh, you know, with a real, real time SaaS, uh, and so I, I bootstrapped on relationships like this, um, for about 14 months and hit that sort of divergent point where I was either going to sell the company or go into a laborious fundraise process, tried to do a little bit of both time and, uh, very fortuitously had an offer, um, from a private equity backed company to come in and um, to uh to be acquired and and have a, have an earn out uh, and then merge the tech in into the uh, roll the tech in into the private equity portfolio, but chiefly what the the into the company that uh, had acquired us and that company was finder and finder was a really interesting company that did uh, i you know very coincidentally a lot of the same work that I had done in Iraq, which is bring uh, the offline world onto the online world. And that was, uh, you know, if you want to what 50,000 people in Brazil are saying about a new product that just came out through the major supermarket chain, uh, how do you go and get that and how do you put that online and make it accessible through a database and be able to query, you know, public, what, what, what the public is saying about that product, what those people look like in terms of demographics, and uh, how else you could reach those people uh, through that tool. So finder was uh, doing a lot of that in uh, building this kind of network of um, offline data collectors. We, we, like to, we like to think of them as uh, kind of Ubers for data. So if you are a say a global supermarket chain like a, like a Carrefour or a, a, a Walmart and uh, you're trying to understand a very local market that you're looking to enter, uh, you could call up our offline co- collector system and basically call an Uber for data and then tell them to go and find out X, Y, and Z about uh, this uh, this particular zip code or this location. And here's a set of questions you want to ask and also take some pictures and also uh, you know let us know just generally what you observe. And uh, then that would be sent back and made available through an API. Uh, and we were actually... Uh, the largest vendor through this tool, the largest vendor to a, a very, uh, very well-known market research company that ran public opinion surveys uh, um, all over the world, and uh, we were the uh, lead vendor for their flagship uh, global public opinion survey product. Uh, so that was a you know really amazing opportunity for us to get to know uh, the relationship between people and uh, you know a single piece of data. Um, what what how does an individual think of a, a piece of data, um, like their opinion on something or their own uh, demographic uh, attributes, and then compare that to what a business thinks about that same set of attributes and that person? And what we realize, what I realized at, at Finder was that they're basically the same, and and people actually uh, there's a convergence point where people they actually think that their own opinion, the things that they do, um, they should be getting value back for it um, in the same way that enterprises are getting value for it rather than one-off sur- surrendering it over to the company. And uh, that's really what kind of prompted my interest in, well, how do I make these same tools available to users uh, at the same level of sophistication that businesses have those tools? So if I'm solving this B2B use case an enterprise problem where I'm letting the big CPG companies and uh, you know, CMOs of big, big companies uh, all over the world uh, get to know uh, people. Um, and then this of course constitutes a $200 billion digital advertising market. The public opinion and survey market is north of 50 billion. So all in, you know, 250 to $300 billion worth of people's data uh, that businesses are consuming. How do I make that $300 billion market equally accessible to the people themselves that are generating it? So leaving Finder um, after a year, uh, we had a a kind of reorg at the private equity level and really was an opportune time. This is in 2018, uh, early uh, early 2019, when Cambridge Analytica broke and there was kind of a growing conscientiousness of the these sort of uh, failures on parts of uh, big tech and the entire big tech ecosystem uh, to give users equal, uh, you know, symmetrical tools to the stuff that they, that they have uh, and, and that they give to, um, to businesses to basically to monetize our eyeballs, right? right. And um, I saw that as a big problem and I linked up with uh, my co-founder, Ben, who uh, I met through the Google network in New York, and we had a mutual mentor, and he had actually been working on a lot of the same problems as an entrepreneur himself. And it was just sort of the right time and the right team and the right background uh, to get it going.
0: Sure. Okay. So what actually made you and Ben decide to actually go for this thing? And how did you you guys start it off? Did you raise some money? Did you bootstrap or walk us through the early days and actually going for it?
1: Yeah, well, they, the timing was absolutely perfect in that uh, we had uh, a both been looking to, to start our, our next thing and really okay. crystallize our ideas of uh, what, what are the real th- things we're looking to do uh, to solve um, and how do we bring our backgrounds together in an optimal kind of structure um, to to solve uh, the problems that we're looking to, to solve together. And those problems that we identified as a team were privacy and data ownership. Some would say there is a tension between the two, but with what we've discovered with Ozone now, having been at Ozone for two years is that there isn't really a tension. It's really about a user choice and an optimal trade-off between those two choices. Um, so to, to start that company, we, to start Ozone, we uh, sat together in a co-working space in New York Uh, we get, we got a space for really cheap. Um, and then we started kind of, uh, pooling together our ideas and just kind of jamming and brainstorming, uh, on what does it look like to have a information transfer in a no trust environment? What would a, uh, blockchain supported, uh, private key based, uh, data management system look like, how do we actually decentralize user data? what tools do we need to give people in the least amount of effort required on their part to get them access to uh, this $300 billion data market? Uh, and how do we do it in a way where people can actually trust us? And so these are kind of all the questions that we were putting together. And then we um, filed a few provisional patents just to kind of you know codify some of the stuff that we were thinking about and some of the kind of uh, abstract systems that we we had in, in, in our minds and then uh, we got very lucky and that I was able to carry over a relationship from my first company uh, with a uh, a defense department applied research uh, entity that was interested in uh, some of the same problems and uh, but were really interested in just the machine learning capability that Ben and I brought uh, myself having um had my first company Leviathan and then also having been in data science, just being able to take large user data sets and start modeling, uh, you know, human behavior, different patterns and identifying regularity in certain patterns. So it really just gave us an opportunity to make a little bit of cash and kind of make ends meet for us. Uh, that was a simple services contract. And, uh, we, while we were running off of that income, uh, we, uh, connected with Jason Calacanis, uh, okay, just easy. in a, in a cold, uh, yeah. And just a cold email. We loved what he did. Oh, wow. And we saw uh, a lot of, um, yeah, we saw a lot of alignment in the things that he had done as an angel investor and the kind of companies that he had supported and what I would say, kind of empowering, uh, individuals, most notably with Uber and, you know, giving people the power to, to, to earn money, um, just, you know, on their time. Uh, basically, unlocking inventory and assets for people to ma- to to build their own, uh, you know, earnings and, and lifestyle, and uh, so we saw a lot of alignment in our philosophy. Jason invited us out to San Francisco. We had a conversation with him, uh, and then we were we interviewed for his accelerator and uh, got into the accelerator in uh, twenty nineteen. After which, we turned off our contract with the uh, government agency because we just saw naturally that if we're building this company around user trust and user data ownership, we don't really want it to, 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 be, um, um, kind of, uh, overlapping in, in, uh, you know, in, in the hands of, of public, public entities that, that may or may not, you know, do things that we, we want them to do with the data. So we, we turned off that, that contract fortunately had, uh, an initial angel check from, from Jason and, and then being in the accelerator, uh, we started focusing on what the product architecture would look like, and amazing coaching from Jason and his team, uh, tons of um, general kind of throughput we got in front of VCs and and uh, other angel investors, just by virtue of being in that accelerator, which is just a ton of traffic and spread of uh, you know ideas, entrepreneurs uh, companies and then um, through that accelerator we raised our our seed round at the at the end of the year and then uh then we got going
0: no very very cool and like obviously he runs a very successful this week in startups podcast and i've been on his slack channel and last time i looked it's like thirty eight thousand people are just on that and i've tried to invite others i i can't like if if somebody knows how to get on that slack channel or can It's an amazing, amazing resource. And I've met a bunch of people and some great things on there. So like, like I've even had personal experience, um, not directly with him, but through other stuff that he's done um, that like, yeah, his network is incredible. Right. And so that's awesome. You got to experience that. And, you know, I've had, I've got to leverage it even myself, um, you know, and we kind of do similar shows, but I think if you can get on his net network and his Slack channel, like just for listeners, like it's nothing but beneficial. Right. And it sounds Absolutely. like any of the stuff that he's been in kind of involved in um, has been, it has been great. Right. Yeah. I, I, I just think
1: Jason has has curated this community of it really incredibly uh, creative people. And then uh, people who like to get in early on, on just kind of big totally. game changing ideas. And uh, it, it is a very, you know, kind of niche space in that, he's just incubating a lot of ideas and, and people who are pushing these ideas. And there's just a ton of ex- kind of exciting stuff that's coming out of there. I just love to be um, you know, involved, involved in that community. It's really, really been amazing for us to, to consider ourselves really lucky to have been a part of that.
0: Very cool. So walk us through actually getting some of your first clients and customers and how has the platform evolved over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, taking on this big uh, two sided marketplace problem uh, required a lot of experimentation early on. So, I moved totally. the company to, to LA to be in a consumer, a uh, little bit more right. of a consumer market and move away from the B2B kind of data privacy and compliance uh, culture, I would say, which prevails more in the tech scene in New York. Sure. I do think geography really does matter in, in building a company. So we kind of tapped into the consumer vibe. Okay. Yeah, we build the consumer vibe in California. Uh, so me kind of coming back, I had been in, you know, in the Bay Area before and, and moved, now, now living in, in SoCal. Um, and so we tried a few things. Really what we were trying to ask ourselves is how much will people opt in uh, into a company that they had never heard of and give us uh, a preview of their, you know, their personal lives? Uh, in exchange for some undefined amount of money that they would be getting. uh, And then to find what is that unit around which they would be earning? What is that unit of data? What are the unit economics for personal data? So we just thought, you know, the market breaks it down into a few ways. Um, It's usually all kind of revolves around identity and authenticated identity. But if you consider that as the kind of the hub in, in a hub and spoke system, there are other streams data that go flow into that identity. There, there are things like, you know, your, your financials from your, your banking and your payment credentials. Um, and then there's your, uh, clickstream data, which is sort of your browsing. And then there's your social, which, uh, you know, kind of reinforces identity, but brings in basically tells an advertiser, like who is this person, uh, in terms of brands and purchases and lifestyle and affinity, you know, brand affinity and, and people. Uh, and then opening up sort of a market of you know who are the influencers that this person responds to and follows sure. um, and then there's, of course uh, content consumption around media and entertainment, which also informs personal taste and choice and and uh, disposable income preferences. So trying to break that down is a you know pretty pretty massive um, problem. so we tried to to uh, put out a few kind of uh, early tests to see. Uh, how much people would be willing to opt in in uh, the the lightest weight uh, product format as possible. So we released a Chrome extension in the summer. um, And just let everybody know, hey, Ozone is out here to uh, help you guys monetize your data. And we are going to give you uh, control back over your data inventory so you can actually see what is valuable to an advertiser, allow you to curate it uh, almost in a kind of like, here's my... uh, portfolio of uh, data assets and I'm going to kind of mix and match my portfolio. Um, like as if, you know, you're an inventory manager of things that generate uh, income for you. And then uh, we're going to do it in a way where it's programmatic and you don't have to do a lot of, uh, like, send us a bunch of stuff, you know, to this team and company that you've never heard of before. Uh, we'll, We'll just do it through a simple flow. Um, and, uh, kind of a linear flow and then opt in programmatically different pieces of data by authenticating over an API. And what we found, uh, so we did that for YouTube and Instagram and Twitter, and we got a few people to opt that stuff in. And then we got uh, surprisingly a lot of people to opt in their Gmail access. Um, and what that really taught us was not so much. So we, we ended up reversing out backpedaling out of that product format because we saw that it was, a. Uh, asking people for a lot uh, for little value right now. Um, okay. But what we learned was uh, that people are generally not sensitive uh, to the things that uh, they do every day online. And uh, they know that they share a lot of it in community to begin with. Um, and as long as they get something back for it and they feel like they have a sense of control, people are willing to do, um, you know what what a lot of privacy theorists expect uh, people will never do which is things like go ahead and read my email and, and what we learned is that um a lot of people just uh have kind of made their peace with the fact that they're going to be living their lives on the internet and continually si- signing up for new services and opting into uh different you know apps and and communities and uh, all that is uh escaping into the ether and there's very little that uh, you can do besides play a constant whack-a-mole process to a kind of batten that the privacy hatches um, or you could take advantage of that and uh, get a piece of the income stream uh, and all the revenue that floats around all that data. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time sort of also in building a kind of an education system and trying to get people to understand this is kind of what the marketplace looks like and how it actually works. And then, um, what we did from all that learning was go back to the basics and just say, "Look, we, we don't want people to have to opt in a bunch of stuff uh, okay. that uh, requires a lot of thinking like, "Oh, how, how you know what are what are these accounts, and do I really want people to see them, and if people see them, what am I going to get back?" So rather, what we did was... We just uh, asked people to simply install our Chrome extension, and okay. built within the developer, per, de- developer uh, permissions of a Chrome extension, this is available to any developer on the Chrome ecosystem, is simple tracking of browser history. And okay. we realized that, uh, especially the timing of 2020 and 2021, when Google announced that third-party tracking cookies would be going away, yeah. uh, kind of the cookie apocalypse that uh, we had this incredible opportunity to go in and pick up where advertisers were leaving off and give them a user owned cookie via, via browser, browser tracking. And it was uh, the lightest weight way to get users to opt into a simple uh, data ownership and monetization system. That is just the entry point into other things that users can do to escalate, uh, you know, permissions for ozone to, to get more stuff for them uh, to not only, can not only monetize, but actually have visibility into it. So a lot of things that we also saw was users have no idea what's in their Facebook and they have no idea what's in their Google. If you even try to get your data on Facebook and you download your data, it takes at least 30 minutes depending on how much data you have. Sure. And then you get it as a bunch of JSON uh, you know, and HTML files that most people have no idea what to do with. And sure. it was just kind of treated as like an afterthought and we just thought of it as like, you know, this is really bad uh, treatment um, for users to, to give them a bunch of files that, you know, the engineers at Facebook full well know that, that most people have no idea what to do with all this stuff. Sure. Yeah. So, so we thought we could just create a free service for users to also see what advertisers see about them and then sure. uh, give them the opportunity to curate that inventory. Um, and, you know, the browsing history is just a really great point for us. So we relaunched in November. Uh, we signed up ten thousand uh, users in the first wow. month. Uh, we've been acquiring users at a clip of about seven, about seven thousand to ten thousand new users a month. Wow, congrats! Um, That's huge. Thank you. Yeah, and we're we're rapidly we're at about sixty thousand registered users, and our daily active user is uh, our, our daily active user count is over fifteen thousand. Wow. Uh, and daily active is everybody that has a Chrome extension installed, and is allowing us to uh, to track their The browsing history. And what every user gets now to fulfill our promise to to our users is you simply get paid to surf the web. If you have the extension installed and you enable browser permissions, uh, we pay you a weekly data dividend and you can actually see the dividend ticking in real time, similar to a stock portfolio, uh, where if you open the extension, you'll see a scrolling wallet ticker that's just giving you, uh, you know, increments of a a dollar um, every second scrolling up. Uh, which is uh, just a huge, huge opportunity um, for us to let users know, hey, every every minute you're on the internet, you're generating data that's worth something. Uh, so you're going to get a piece of that back.
0: Interesting. So how did you guys land your first consumer or companies that were willing to say like, you know what, we're, we need this data, we want these uh, users. How How did you guys go or any advice on closing some of those? Because... You started with some huge brands. I'm assuming you leveraged some of your connections at actually working at some of those companies, but walk us through that, or any advice you have on that
1: Yes, so uh, our experience was a little bit uh, a little bit different in that uh, we didn't go for the big uh, the big kind of whales with longer sales cycles than. Okay. Um, as we could have early on, and what we wanted to do is validate our market with companies that are most in need uh, and most behind the notion of data ownership and uh, getting getting new channels to reach audiences. So we partnered with a company, uh, huge, huge direct-to-consumer CBD company, a uh, health and beauty and wellness company based here in California called Kush Queen. Uh, Olivia Alexander, CEO, is incredibly creative, incredibly smart, uh, energetic, and really uh, kind of radical also in her thinking about data ethics and data ownership. She's uh, we're a huge fan of hers, and she's a huge supporter of Ozone. Um, and the, she has historically, as a business owner, struggled with getting uh, getting ads out to uh, to users on conventional channels, uh, which is an interesting um, problem. And that uh when you really boil it down to what the problem is, is she's having trouble spending her marketing money on on facebook and and google uh sure. the reason for that is that they uh do not allow uh on a content basis uh based on their policy restrictions in uh any any content ad content that refers to uh you know to c b d and and
0: um
1: t h c products so um, that represented a huge opportunity for her to come and find an alternative delivery mechanism of those ad units, um, and to just to reach users uh, through simple promotions, um, announcing a partnership with a company like ours, and uh, we were able to drive uh, over two thousand unique leads to her platform in, wow. in the first few months of our of our partnership we ran a live game show, uh, that was ad sponsored, uh, by her, uh, that, um, you know, got the word out to our users in, in a highly engaged format of basically, you know, eyeballs glued to the screen for 10 to 15 minutes. And, um, you know, she's, she's been incredibly helpful for us as, as a, a brand ambassador. And we struck our first contract with her, uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, and we're excited to, uh, to pilot our advertising product with her in just uh, just the summer. So um, that's been amazing for us in that we have this opportunity to validate our two-sided marketplace with a company that's, uh, you know, embedded in the direct-to-consumer uh, Shopify universe, uh, which represents just a huge market of companies, particularly in the kind of post-brick-and-mortar retail universe, where businesses are just looking to reach users in new ways. And then, uh, you know, fulfill orders online in you know, purely in purely e-commerce spaces. So um, that gave us an opportunity to validate early on. My advice is um, find people that have problems uh, that are very current and are struggling with kind of uh, stale processes, and then invent new ways to uh, to solve those problems. Um, and that you know, Kush Queen was exactly that 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 customer uh, that partner for us
0: interesting okay and then talk quickly about the survey side of uh, ozone
1: yes so we we have some surveys any user can come in and use our earn feature which has a collection of different themed surveys like health and beauty social uh, media entertainment uh fitness etc and earn money uh Spot, uh, spot cash for filling out surveys. This is our opportunity to create one of the world's largest online real-time uh, polling polling audiences. And what we want sure. to do through our real-time push notification system is an enable instant dialogue between a company and our user base. Where I, a company like my last customer at my last company, which is a giant market research company wanted, say, a panel of 100,000 people to right. ask them uh, on Friday afternoon at 3 p.m., uh, you know, going into uh, MLB postseason, uh, who's your favorite team in the MLB race and uh, why, why, why is that your favorite team and uh, what players do you like? And then do this on a, on a recurring basis, say at a fixed time, and get an instant answer. And then beyond, behind the answer is who is this person? the right. You know, what are they like on, on social? Uh, what is their income band? Um, who are their friends, et cetera? These are sorts of things. And then doing in a completely permissioned way that's been opted in uh, first party by that user or the user has come out explicitly said, I, I'm perfectly happy to talk to whatever company and they can know all these things about me as, as an individual um, and as a group, as a cohort. Uh, as long as there's something in it for me, and there's an equal, equal, and uh, you know, opposite exchange in that transaction, and so Ozone has created this real-time survey platform. Uh, right now, users can come in and build a little bit of their data inventory. That's kind of sort of psychometric data about them that becomes uh, accessible later on a permission basis, uh, permission by the user to companies who are re- looking to reach a cohort of people that match certain amount, certain criteria based on uh, their answers in in those surveys.
0: Interesting. Okay. And so how do you go about recruiting the companies for the survey side? Is it similar to what you mentioned earlier or or walk us through that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it it is. And, uh, we, we want to get to a critical mass of about a hundred thousand daily actives, which we think is the kind of core sample size you need to run programmatic surveys. Um, And uh, I am very excited to to, uh, activate my previous relationships uh, at Google and um, also from my last company, Finder, to go and grab this market of market research, which is, uh, you know, quickly evolving more, you know, into focus groups and digital focus groups and uh, really struggling, I think, with ways, novel ways to access user opinions besides the one thing I saw was uh, these, a lot of these companies still send uh, pen and paper uh, surveys. They'll mail sure. uh, you know, directly uh, in an envelope, a paper survey with a pencil, multiple choice format. And they'll also call landlines and you know, ask people if they can take 10 minutes out of their day on the phone to answer questions. Sure. And uh, there, there's kind of a digital feature that's, uh, that Ozone wants to create where any of our audiences can be accessed at any time by a company. And then opted into a quick uh, online on-demand poll and compensate the user for for their for their participation.
0: Interesting. Okay. Very cool. So you brought up something earlier that I think is really interesting, and I I, I agree with you. Is I think people care about their privacy as long as they can control it, and I think a lot of people understand that. They need to give something away sometimes for a convenience to get something back. And I enjoy some of those conveniences from the brands and companies that I trust. And being able to pick and and do that, I think, is very important to people. And I think the fact that you're giving people back that control makes them a lot more comfortable with potentially even giving more data than maybe they would traditionally. Have you found that? Or what are your thoughts around that?
1: Yes, that that's exactly the uh I, I think that is the unlocked value of the uh, of transpar of the transparency that we are trying. Um so put put it put in other terms, as long as you tell the user this is what's happening and who's gonna consume it, they're willing to uh give more if they find that the consumer of that that data is gonna give them something back. Uh, So what we're trying to do is create an efficient clearing system between users and their favorite companies or companies in their favorite sort of spaces uh, so that um, the companies feel empowered by more data from that user to serve them the best possible good and service that is matched to that user's preferences. And what we find is if a user is able to go in and tell companies Hey, I'm on the market for, uh, my, yeah, I have two kids that play, ho- uh, hockey and, uh, I'm on the market for ice skates, uh, every fall because, uh, my kids are growing quickly and they quickly outgrow their equipment. Uh, and I had, you know, a really great experience with, uh, you know, exports apparel company. And, uh, if, as long as they're able to come back to me every fall with a new pair of skates that at a price that beats, uh you know, competitors and saves me the time of having to go shop around for, for a new pair of skates every fall. I'm willing to tell them, oh, I also, uh, you know, my, uh, in my extended family, we also uh, go skiing uh, to uh, Colorado every, you know, every, uh, every winter. And uh, when we go skiing, this is uh, typically what we do. And I'm willing to opt in that information. Then the sports apparel company is able to turn around and then meet my entire sort of lifestyle needs, or even you know that that started with a single purchase, but then uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, expanded into the the full fold of all the things that I do in my lifestyle around sports, right? around sports and lifestyle and 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 building that uh, branded relationship between the user and the business is so important. And what we actually find solving for the enterprise side is that companies really struggle. Uh, with remarketing expenses because what they'll see a lot is a customer will come in and they'll try something out and then they'll churn and they'll never come back maybe, you know maybe they'll make a purchase and they'll send it back say I didn't like it and then they'll never come back and the customers the, the enterprise customer spends a lot of time trying to reacquire that that customer you know what what does it take for us to get to earn your business again uh, was it the you know the wrong product the wrong price and what we want to solve for is the user to tell businesses, you know advertise to me yes because i like it, or don't advertise to me at all because i don't think i'm going to like this stuff so trying to create a little bit more of an efficient match between the two parties almost like a like uh we try to be very careful with this analogy but a lot of it's sort of like a, a recommender system that you would find like on on a dating app you know we're going to match these two people because of uh these attributes that are closely you know corresponding and uh we are building on our back end a a smart learning system that smartly matches the user attributes to, to that given uh, enterprise customer.
0: Interesting. Okay. I'm curious to get your thoughts on what do you think the future of privacy is going to be? Because I think it, it seems to me anyway, like the pendulum swings one way where, you know, everything gets locked down for a while. People realize like, Ooh, there's some, pros and cons to this and then it kind of goes back to the middle and then maybe goes a little bit looser and then kind of swings back. Like what are your thoughts around that? Or do you have any other predictions that you've kind of seen that we haven't talked about yet?
1: Yeah, I I do actually. I, I think that people are aware that there's a almost oligopolistic system of data personal data generation and the privacy controls over that data that's generated. And, you know, the, the rules are really set by just a handful of companies like here, here's your data. Uh, and this is how we're going to present it to you. And if you don't like it, that's just kind of too bad, uh, but enjoy right. the free service. Right. And, you know, enjoy uh, liking posts. Right. And, uh, yeah. um, I think we are moving now into rather than, uh, big companies and third parties owning this data, we are moving into a first party world, uh, mainly made possible by growing consumer con- consciousness of kind of decentralization and sovereignty. So that it starts, a lot of it starting with the creator community where, where content creators, which I think t- tend to be the ones that set, set kind of paradigms for the way uh, people, people think of data. Um, they are, you know, demanding their own spaces and, and owning, um, you know, greater rights over that data. Um, and then, you know, that's evolving into a first party kind of walled garden that, that are run by the, by the creators. And mm-hmm. we are trying to create a similar system, uh, of first party data ownership that Ozone is simply facilitating and not owning. So we are giving the users the tools to own their, their own data. And we are just, uh, solving for the technical asymmetries, just there are no tools to do it. And Ozone is is making those tools available. And um, the world is moving a lot more toward first party, uh, first party permission world, where privacy concerns will really be handled by the user themselves. And won't won't have to go through services uh, to control, you know, basically appeal to somebody else to help them manage their privacy. That's the world that we live in right now, where users are signing up for privacy services, ad blocking, uh, and there's an entire kind of whack-a-mole problem there. Um, there's a, there are a few companies that will bulk unsubscribe you from services. They will let you know, oh, hey, did you realize that we use social to sign up for this new app? Uh, for example, you signed up for this grocery delivery app and you forgot you used Facebook to sign up for it. If you want, we can opt you out of it. Do you want us to do that? And this is like a constant sort of uh, like a, a plugging a leaky hole problem. Um, Sure. that, that uh, you're surrendering to other parties to do. And I think in the future it will be companies like Ozone that are creating those tools for those users themselves to say, here's my access point. This is how you can get to me. This is what I want. If you're gonna reach me, this is what you can know about me uh, right. and 10,000 10, other people like me in exchange, I expect to have some, some value returned to me. And so um, I think Ozone is just a handful of many companies that are moving in this direction. I think the internet has kind of reached this inflection point, where it's no longer, you know, kind of run through big institutions, but a lot of it's just coming back as as people start demanding their, their own sort of sovereign tools. Um, business will now now be forced to reckon with that, you know, uh, empowerment at the individual level. Like, hey, this is the world that we now live in. Individuals need need their control, and we're going to deal with the individuals themselves.
0: No, that yeah, that's that's makes a lot of sense. But sadly, we're we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and Ozone?
1: Yeah, uh, very easy to sign up. Uh, anybody can go to Ozone.ai. It's super easy uh, to create an account and then go to the Chrome Web Store and type in Ozone to get our extension. It's free for everyone. And uh, we're also on the iOS platform. Uh, app store and anybody can get uh, our mobile app there. Um, and I encourage everybody to, to go and get our free tools.
0: Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day.
1: Thanks Kevin. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye.